Hello and welcome to the next episode of the Figure Podcast. Very excited for this episode in particular. Firstly, Charlotte, what have you been enjoying this month? Lots of TV shows, movies, not actually very many books. I'm still on the same book. (laughs) Um, That's okay. Which I absolutely love. I really just don't want it to end. It's The Gardener by Sally Vickers. So I'm actually quite glad I'm taking it so slowly. Part of the reason that I'm still reading the same book is because I finally caught COVID. I can't believe I haven't had it until this point. (laughs) So I had many, many days in my room when I really would have loved to have read my book. And I told my brother who was looking after me, he did a great job. He brought me a lots of soup in a mug, which is one of the most comforting things ever. But I told him where I thought my book was. And I don't think he even looked because when I finally got out of isolation, I looked in exactly the place I told him where it was, where he said that he couldn't find it. And it was there. (laughs) (laughs) But that was my only complaint from his uh, care of me. Otherwise, it was very, very nice. And I watched the entirety of Emily in Paris. Have you also watched this? I haven't finished yet I don't know I've for some reason with Emily in Paris I binged the first four or five episodes and then lost interest and one of the reasons I lost interest is because I am very just annoyed by Gabrielle and Camille's relationship I'm just like oh boring can you please just break up now we get it it's not working and then I just lost interest so unfortunately not but I was actually really looking forward to asking you how quarantine was in terms of was it weird to have like a forced relaxation not relaxation is probably the wrong word but no no that's the right word is it the right word was it actually good to just be not have to not do anything for four days five days or however long it was yeah so initially I was incredibly ill so I actually couldn't do anything other than sleep and then watch one Mm. episode of Emily in Paris which I did in the bath which was very nice and then yeah I kind of got a little bit better I did I was wanting to do stuff and be Mm. use that time productively to do things I otherwise wouldn't have been able to do and then that took about three days for me to relax into that and then after that I kind of enjoyed it and then I got bored very quickly and I was better because I just wanted to be downstairs with everybody and I had to be in Mm. my room and we had very very distanced corridor chats with one person at the very end of the landing and the and me and the other it was quite sad like the whole thing Aww. was just a bit sad by that point but then then I got my two negative tests and I got out so that was all fine but Did I listened- taste back yes my taste is back thank god okay. and my smell is back how have you found quarantine when you've quarantined um I've not been ill and quarantined so uh, I think that uh, makes it easier yeah yeah I want I mean when I got back from America I remember I was studying for an exam um, and working from home as you normally do on the computer. So to be honest, it was pretty full on, but I did go for a walk on my own on like day four or five, but I didn't have COVID. So it was fine, but no, I mean, pretty awful. I wouldn't, I don't know how I would feel now having to quarantine when you're ill I guess if you're really ill that's quite an easy thing to do just to have to stay inside no I haven't really needed to other than lockdown lockdown felt like one big quarantine but again you can you can go outside you can eat at the table with friends I mean not friends your household (laughs) what am I talking about (laughs) 
<laughs> all these words that we now use all the time, like quarantine, household, <laughs> um, uh, isolation. What else? You know, PCR. Yeah. Yeah. Flow. Yeah. I don't think I even knew what quarantine was. <laughs> Well, no, it was only ever used for sort of animals. Yes, or animals you... who were on flights. That was the only context. <laughs> or if you had a very exotic type disease that you had to, you know, be in isolation for. Or if you were very immunocompromised in hospital about to get a transplant or something. Mm-hmm. But it's funny now watching films about pandemics or epidemics. Um, because they, you know, they do happen and they are there, but now you get it. It's like watching it with a new lens. Yeah, true. Um, the other things I've been watching are Queer Eye, obviously. <laughs> Never fails to cheer me up or make me cry, normally in the same episode. Uh, and the Return to Hogwarts, which was the sort of, re- yes! like, you know, the Friends reunion equivalent, but yes! Harry Potter, which was unbelievably cringe at the beginning where they sent Harry Potter Hogwarts letters to all of the actors and I thought oh my god this is going to (laughs) be awful and then it got better and by the end it was really heartwarming especially all of the tributes that they made to the actors who've passed away since the um series ended yeah it was actually lovely it was actually very well done I love that they they basically take you through each film and they talk to the director talk to the people behind the scenes the producers and then go to the actors and there's all these behind the scenes stories that they tell about what was going on at the time the filming my favorite fun fact that I found out from that is that Alan Rickman who plays Severus Snape knew the full storyline all the way through because yes. he went to Joe Rowling and said, I've got to, I think that it's important that I know what this character arc is in full. Yes. And nobody else knew. And I just yes. love that. I love that he did that. And I think that's made his performance even better. Um, yes, I actually knew that. I watched this. There's a brilliant interview. I would recommend it. I'll actually link it below of Joe Rowling and Daniel Radcliffe I think they're interviewing each other in 2011 when the last movie was made and they talk about that then and she says that she tells Alan Rickman about Snape and why he is the way he is and that's a fantastic interview it was so good seeing that they just talk for about two hours actually one other recommendation to do with Joe Rowling is the interview that she did with the poet laureate and it's from his shed and it's really lovely it's she's just got such an incredible imagination and brain and it really comes across I love like hearing about her writing process and characters and early things but I was really sad to not see her in it they do reference no she was in it there's a really no, it, was filmed in, it was filmed in 2019 though it says that on the corner of the screen oh for this well noticed I didn't notice that interesting well Uh, no I've been following the story because a lot of the actors have distanced themselves from her publicly yeah to be honest what I really want to happen with JK Rowling is for people for it to just become an open discussion a bit more rather than what's happened which is she sort of got cancelled and everyone's kind of too too worried to talk about it I wish that it hadn't become such a binary and inflammatory conversation. Well, exactly. I mean, exactly. It's like you're on one team or another. Why have we suddenly got teams? This is meant to be a Mm. discussion where people can learn and consider things 
The key thing for me is that she still hasn't fucking apologised, which is ridiculous. <laughs> but I also have read a lot about it and I've read her entire very long essay. I think that there's some hugely complicated things around certain people who have written to her about experiences that happened to them. And I think she's had her own experiences. And then mm-hmm. basically there's just, it's it's why Twitter is a problematic platform with few characters and a history that can be scrolled back through and it's like why the internet is a bad place what this conversation has turned into (laughs) Mm, you almost want to have the conversation with her one-on-one in a room yeah face to face ask questions say what Mm. is the example for this why do you express it in that way what do you think there's such a there's no nuance to it Mm. Mm -hmm. and it's the most nuanced thing and I just don't it's sort of you have to like align yourself with one hashtag or another. And I don't agree with that. Mm. Um, the other thing that I've been watching is Clarkson's Farm. I've only watched one episode so far. Have you seen this? No. Oh my God, gee, it's hilarious. It was filmed kind of, I think in 2019, actually. And the guy who runs his farm has retired. So Jeremy Clarkson decides to do it himself. And he knows absolutely nothing about farming. And he learns everything and you kind of learn with him. And it's just, he's so willing to take the piss out of himself and just be like his biggest personality. And it's just so enjoyable to watch. And I can't wait to watch the rest of it. Oh, do you know who did recommend it to me though? Tom. Yes. Ah! Yes. I I recognise. He told me, (laughs) we were, were, I don't know, I was ankle deep in mud and (laughs) struggling up a hill. And he was like, seen Clarkson's mom um so yes I remember that reference so that's yeah no I should check that out I've also been very much enjoying all the memes that have been going around after you know one minister after another is revealed having all these parties it's almost becoming absolutely (laughs) hilarious at this point and I think very clever actually that all of these parties are being revealed makes Boris look less bad for his party (laughs) well does it I I think it's strategic personally but you know me I'm always thinking as to what they're doing really behind the scenes and trying to I don't know I absolutely despise Boris Johnson so I'd be very happy if he stepped aside but it is a bit of a joke how much that has been in the news this week it is the whole thing is a joke the whole thing is a joke like how how is this happening? I don't know. It's it's just disgusting. It's like it's the arrogance of it. <laughs> <laughs> it's just horrendous. Oh god. Anyway, moving on. What have you been enjoying? That I've been following that story pretty closely. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. The first figure that we are going to talk about today is Margaret Wiggum who became the Duchess of Argyle and is the key character in A Very British Scandal, which is a new three-part series from BBC, which stars Claire Foy as Margaret Wiggum and Paul Bettany as her husband, who becomes her ex-husband. So she was born on the 1st of December in 1912. She was educated in New York and she was always seen as very beautiful. And she was the debutante of the year when she was sort of brought out into society. I think that kind of the appearance and beauty had always been important 
to an extent to her and her mother by the sounds of it because she had they would pluck her eyebrows at age nine yes terrifying isn't it yeah but she was very she stood out a lot when she came out into society she'd actually been pregnant with David Niven's child when she was 15 and that pregnancy was Mm -hmm. terminated and she had I didn't realize this they didn't touch on this in the series but she had a stillborn daughter with her first husband she had two children who survived with him and she had eight miscarriages Mm, eight yes so many engaged twice to other men that she never married so Ian Campbell, who was the Duke of Argyle, who became the Duke of Argyle, he was her second husband. And they married in 1951 and divorced in 1963. And it was one of the longest and most costly divorces in British history Mm. and was all over the papers. Lots of which was because of the number of lovers that he was claiming and saying that she had had, which was 88. And one of the reasons for this was because he had found, not even found, sorry, correction, stolen mm-hmm. her yes. diary. Yes. <laughs> and there was a V on lots of different dates, which he thought was a mark of her having sex with a man. And she had lots and lots and lots of male friends who apparently many of whom were gay, but she didn't out them because it was obviously illegal at the time in the UK. And people looking back on the case now, this would have obviously very much helped her defence if she was able to explain that because she was seen a lot with men but yes they weren't her lovers something I wanted to do actually is just highlight how well written this series this is just right from the beginning and how well Mm. directed so it's written by Sarah Phelps and directed by Anne Sawinski who's Norwegian Mm. which I think is so fascinating because I think that that distance from British culture and society and kind of having that slight bit of objectivity Mm. makes it because that's what she was aiming to do is give a more objective view of those that past event and life and divorce and scandal that at the time was so incredibly full of hypocrisies Mm. and one quote that I thought was brilliant from the director Anne was it was my ambition to understand her rather than make her likable Yes. Well, it's just retelling. What it feels like is retelling the facts. And it's funny because in nowadays standards, actually it wasn't that scandalous, but at the time it very much was. And it really got me thinking. And by what I mean by that is obviously adultery is horrible for, you know, whether it's now, whether it's then. But at the time she was so brutally slut shamed publicly and her husband was doing the same thing but she was the one that had her reputation and kind of livelihood very much destroyed well so many people were doing the same thing the thing that made them different and made it into a scandal is that they were talking about it and they were you know it's like this she was known as like the dirty duchess and like airing her Mm. dirty laundry Mm. and I think that's what they were touching on in this scene with the very annoying friend but on a friend oh she's so <laughs> annoying the thing is though I think what it's really telling is the story of how women have been publicly shamed and the part that society the media authority like the judge has to play in that and especially in the 50s and 60s it's still completely a man's world completely 
And it made me think of Wallace Simpson. It made me think of Anne Boleyn. It made me think of even Marilyn Monroe. So many characters in history who have had this treatment. Yeah. The whole situation, again, reminds me of Monica Lewinsky. She also had the court of public opinion absolutely shame her for everything that came out. All the out- And it's always the female that is portrayed in that way. Yes, it's the, it's the Monica Lewinsky scandal, not the Bill mm-hmm. Clinton scandal. And it's yeah. the Duchess of Argyle scandal, not the Duke of mm-hmm. Argyle scandal. Mm-hmm. It's, it's been constant throughout history. And I think that what links a lot of these women together is clearly they have incredible ambition. They're very sure of themselves. People would, you know, when you learn about Anne Boleyn in school, there were lots of sources at the time to say that she was very clever. She was very kind of ambitious. She was very personable. And you do think, you do think, wow, they definitely tried to go outside the mold of what a woman should be at that time and were completely destroyed by it. And this is the easiest way to discredit someone. The easiest way to do it for a woman is to slut shame. That's why it's so powerful. And revenge porn. Yeah. Well, I listened to a fantastic interview with Claire Foy talking about it. And they were talking about the word slut shame. And she was saying how much she hates it. And then she wished it didn't really exist. And saying how Eve in the Bible was basically the first woman who was slut shamed. Mm -hmm. Definitely, of course. From all the facts that you see about Margaret, whether it's the early abortion, eight miscarriages, the kind of notoriety that she had, she also had this horrendous accident in 1943. She fell 40 feet down a lift shaft. Apparently, she there was a cable, a lift cable at the end that broke her fall. And if it wasn't for that, she would have definitely died. She just has a lot of strength and grit and and is not afraid to ask for what she wants, go for what she wants, and was very open about that. And you see that in the script. You know, she says that she enjoys sex or good at sex or something like that. To you know, I very, love that scene. Frankly, so to the female, yes, to the to that female, and and that was just shocking for a woman to do that. And obviously, men were doing that. The entire, you know, it was complete double standard. Obviously, can we talk about the Polaroid picture? Because yes, yes. Do you want to explain it, Shah? So she's basically going down on this guy and there's a photograph of it. So it's her on her knees and a headless man. We never find out the identity (laughs) of the man. She tried to make it seem like it was the Duke of Argyle, which then led to him having an examination to see whether it could have been him or not. They decided that it wasn't. And nobody ever finds out who this person is, but they use that and show it in court and it all becomes this huge thing and um it followed her around for the rest of her life that picture Mm. which is sort of like revenge porn isn't it really revenge porn absolutely I mean he stole it from her to reveal in the courts for to you know to prove that she was unfaithful so that he could grant his divorce and the reason he wanted the divorce is because he had run out I think they she had stopped giving him money at this point and when you look back in all of his marriages they've all been to very wealthy women he was in, he didn't have an income himself and I think it says at the end of the series that actually five weeks after they got divorced and he married another you know American heiress who was very wealthy but essentially Margaret's father was 
a millionaire or self-made millionaire. She was very wealthy in her own right. She also had been divorced from her first husband. So she also had a lot of money from that. And she kind of took it on herself to restore the castle, Inverary Castle, which is the uh, Campbell seat. And there is a shipwreck in the waters on the grounds of the castle. And in 2008, they actually tried to go and rescue her. But but essentially, so much money and time was put into restoring the castle and recovering the shipwreck. And the money ran out and she lost everything. Those scenes are done so well. They are so devastating when she is realising how much money her husband took from her. Because it's not just the money that she thought that she lent him, but it's even more. Yes. The shipwreck is such a symbol. It just mm. feels like it's a novel. Uh, no, no. You can't raise the ship and find this like treasure. It's like remains buried. Mm. And, and it's there, just, but it, they just can't reach them. it. And it's, it's sort just of... sunken. Yes. The final thing I want to say before we move on is that the judgment scene, again, absolutely incredible. And that the judgment was over three hours long. That's how long the judge kept on talking. And this is a little clip from it of what he thought of Margaret Righam, a completely promiscuous woman whose sexual appetite could only be satisfied with a number of men. Her attitude to the sanctity of marriage was what moderns would call enlightened, but which in plain language was wholly immoral. He wasn't being a judge. No. In this, in that he was absolutely mind the pun judging her um, beyond his professional role it's actually so sad when you think about it too much but Mm -hmm. I'm so I was so I so enjoyed this series I thought it was brilliantly done and I think retelling the retelling of these stories now is what's going to actually hopefully change the narrative The next figure is that there have been 101 episodes of Sex and the City, which includes And Just Like That, which is the revival series that has just come out over the last month or so. Sex and the City ran from 1998 to 2004. The key themes of dating relationships, female friendship, are extraordinarily well written I agree so in the podcast Sentimental in the City which is part of Sentimental Garbage Caroline O'Donoghue and Dolly Alderton talk about the character arcs of Miranda and Charlotte and Samantha a little bit so Miranda has this arc of she's very rigid she's cold she's distant because she's been on too many horrible dates and she's very cynical and then by the end of it she is looking after Steve's mum and giving her a bath and this woman mm. she doesn't have anything in common with, but she is loving by proxy of loving Steve. And it's this complete soft, you can just see how much she's changed and evolved as a person and as a character. With Charlotte, it's this perfect on paper fakeness, like things that don't really matter, like where someone mm. went to college or what they wear, things that are superficial. And then that all being stripped back when she falls in love with Harry. And, yeah. and I think it's also her whole infertility journey and struggles and then resolution is also done very delicately 
Mm. And that's another thing where I can imagine her being the little girl who would never stop putting her, like playing with her dollies and always imagining herself as a mum and those moments and never once stopping to think that that might be more complicated than she thought. So Mm. that was, that's done brilliantly. And they talk about that in the series. My question is, what is Carrie's arc? What do we see from Carrie season one through, we're going to just do it for the series to season six. I've got my own answer, but I want to know what you think. (laughs) Okay. I think with Carrie, because she's the main character, I think it's slightly looser for Carrie than it is the other three. The other three have actually quite defined arcs, as you mentioned. Even Samantha in her way, you know, when you see her at the end of the series, she's very different to the beginning of the series. And Samantha learns to let love in, I think. Yeah, and be humble. Yeah. Carrie, it's it's to be honest, it's all about big, is I think what it is with Carrie coming back to and I don't know whether it's that she is able to, I don't know, accept herself for who she is by the end. And therefore that's when things work out with big and she's like slightly less neurotic and insecure. And then in the movies. And also this later series, she's not as horrendous to watch as she is in those first seasons. <laughs> um, and I say that because I recognise my own patterns. Uh, no judgment. <laughs> so that, for me, I would say is what, what comes to mind for that, for that question. What's your answer? Yeah, so my answer is that she is so busy in the early seasons obsessing mm. over men. And trying to answer big relationship questions and learning from the people around her. But basically the journey is that she goes from being very obsessy Mm. and to, I hope, recognising that the greatest relationships, and this is how it actually ends with the voiceover, are the ones with, which it ends about talking about yourself, which is key, but I think Mm. it's those women. It's talking about your female friendships and that the constant is they're there for each other and that's what makes the show so special and I think that that's it's like her realization that they are her people and her soulmates I think that's it because she I think she takes too much for granted in the beginning agreed women people who are literally at the end of your nose yes exactly and I think that builds yes like I said builds confidence in herself and she's just not as neurotic anymore by the end but that's why it's like so compelling because we Mm. recognize annoying reactions in ourselves and Mm. also it's what makes the drama and drives and changes the dynamics of those friends and makes it interesting because she is incredibly flawed exactly well they've got well they've done so well is they've created four characters all of whom are different all of whom are looking at different themes throughout the show and it's so well put together because then obviously they interlink and what's annoying is why why did they come back and do another series i feel like it's ruining it a little bit a lot it's ruining it a lot i mean it's so tempting with a show that that that's you know, that's successful. And I'm so glad that Friends never did it because it would have been, again, very tempting to 
it's never going to be the same and they don't need to come back it's not like they need to make more money or so clearly they wanted to do it and yeah. you can tell that by the press that the actors have done around it like they're very excited by it but to me it just comes across as them trying to make up for errors that they had in the show initially i.e it was very white it was very you know heteronormative in the majority and now they're coming back and they're just overkilling that it's like they're trying to make up for it they're trying too hard and the writing it's like sometimes it's incredible and most of the time it makes me want to hide <laughs> but there are some really nice moments so trying to be positive I'm going to highlight a couple of them from the reboot my favorite <laughs> moment is when Carrie has a hip operation, which seems to kind of come out of nowhere. Like one minute she's walking all over New York in her heels. And then the next she has hip problem, which is she's apparently had all her life. Maybe it was set off by the walking. And so she's just had the operation and Charlotte is helping her pee because she can't like get to the toilet herself. And, and it's just like such a sweet, raw, hilarious but also kind of painful moment it's so human and I have never seen a, sh a little moment like that between friends done so well so I love that but anyway they, there's been a couple of good moments but from the original series okay so what is your favorite outfit of Sex in the City one of my favorites is the green kind of tutu dress that she wears in Paris when she loses her carry necklace and it's in the lining of her purse, which is very symbolic and beautiful. And another is the when they go to the black and white ball that's being hosted by Richard and she's going out with Aiden and she's in the most beautiful white dress which is really fitted and she's got her hair up and she kind of it's like an Audrey Hepburn style hairstyle beautiful jewellery and they're walking back together and they're it's on a very old New York and um he wants to get married right there and then and um she doesn't feel comfortable with that and then ultimately that relationship breaks down which is very sad but the dress is stunning <laughs> that's actually I forgot about that dress well yeah. referenced my favorite is just the pink dress from the opening credits I love that dress it's beautiful See, that's a great moment in the film when they try on these outfits from the series and they're clearing out her wardrobe and Samantha comes back from LA and she brings like two bottles of bubbles and they have a ball. I love that scene. It's so joyous. And that is what the series and just like that is missing. Well, that's when they got the film really right. Like that scene for sure. I wonder if the new show will continue. Not sure. Oh, um, good question. Yeah. Okay, if, if it does continue, what would they? What would you like them to do differently? I would get them to write thematically, like they did last time. So really interchange the ep like the episodes need to continue from each other, but they also need to deal with an issue in each episode and not rush it. I also think that what they've done with Steve is really mean. Steve is a lovely character and they've made him horrible. Steve does not deserve. To be yes. Wait, what is happening? He is the great, a great character. He's funny and goofy and sweet. Mm. 
and he's lovely and they also they they did that so brilliantly in the show they had this like rocky road the amazing meet cute between Miranda and Steve and all of these things and they work them out and then they have the gorgeous wedding and I think they did that quite well in the film as well of like this you know there's the infidelity and then they work Mm. through it and then they have the amazing Mm. moment on the Brooklyn Bridge and I think the writers just don't they haven't understood how important these male characters are Mm. but they also want one of the characters to have a queer experience and but they've just left him out of it. It's like he doesn't have a voice. Mm, it's true. But, okay, what else would I want them to do differently? Okay, I, I think Carrie should have a podcast, but I think it should be an agony aunt, and she answers people's questions and tries to help them with their situations that Carrie will probably have first-hand experience of. Exactly. Yeah. And also, why does she need to do a podcast? Like, she's not a podcaster, and she... She's a writer, exactly. Where's the writing gone? Oh, you'll see in this new episode. The third figure is a new US postage stamp, which features the sculptor Admonia Lewis, who is thought to have been born in 1844, but we're not quite sure because there are sort of elements of her biography which she kind of wrote herself or rewrote and adjusted um, she is believed to have died in London in 1907 and she lived in Rome um, from 1865 and became part of a kind of group of women who were working there. Her sculptures are very classical in style, very what you would call mimetic in art history, which means that they're more following what you would see in real life, kind of photographic, I guess, but sculpture. And she's seen as one of the greatest black American sculptors now mm. at the time she didn't have a widespread reputation and I think it was in Europe really that she found more of a sense of herself and audience she sculpted Henry Wadsworth Longfellow and then she made lots of busts of ab- abolitionists mm. she also did an incredible sculpture called the death of Cleopatra which took her more than four years and she saved up enough to send it to Philadelphia where they had the centennial exhibition and it was accepted but it wasn't bought even though it could have been and then it was later got into the hands of this racehorse owner and gambler and he used it to mark the grave of a horse but it was kept outside by this racetrack and so experienced lots of damage from wind and weather and has been restored quite well, I think, but they could still do even more on it. And it's now, thankfully, in a gallery where you can go and see it. I think it's in New York. From your point of view, as an art historian, the, <laughs> significant, the significance of her being on the, the stamp and recognised now. Yeah, I'm so happy that we finally had more of a recognition of these fantastic, talented artists, because I'd never heard of her. If I hadn't been been looking through for this podcast as to what we would cover, I would never have known who she was because Mm. I had to be and still do have to be so active in trying to find out more about not only women artists, but certainly people of colour artists, women of colour artists. Mm. And she was the first sculptor who was African-American to achieve international recognition, both male or female. Yeah. 
and her father was black and her mother was Indian. Yeah, um, so it's Native American history. Native American. Heritage. And she experienced an unbelievable amount of racism mm-hmm. when she was at her college, um, which she was able to go to because her brother and several abolitionists funded it. Uh, but she still wasn't given the same education as the men and she wasn't able to go to anatomy classes, which would obviously be key for any sculptor. Mm. And she never graduated because she was accused of stealing art supplies. And she was also physically and maliciously attacked. And obviously those are just parts of her history that are worth recognising, but I'm pleased to see in lots of the articles that they don't focus on that element too much. They they talk Mm. about her achievements as an artist and as and as a sculptor much more and recognize her talent as you would if you were writing about a white male sculptor it's true but um but interestingly they don't know a lot of detail about her life it still is still fairly mysterious which sort of adds to this new recognition and fascination of her is oh I don't mean you know know much about her and her life And the stamp itself is really beautiful. It was designed by art director Antonio Alcala and with art by Alex Bostic. And it's got a lovely blue background and shows her face and the features very clearly. It's striking. It's very beautiful. It's very striking. And it Mm. hopefully it will make lots of people read up about her life and look at her work and go and visit it if it's in a gallery near where they're living. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Figure. As we said last time, we aren't 100% sure when each episode will come out, but we will endeavour to do once a month. So stay tuned and keep in touch with us on Instagram. And looking forward to being back next time, Shah. Bye. Bye.